If, uh, if you've heard my wife or I, um, myself speak and on a, a Wednesday night or we actually lead a, a, a Bible study in one of the portables during the second service, uh, you hear us talk a whole lot about uh, this idea that we love uh, with international missions. We, we love the fact that missionaries feel called to a specific people group. And I'd like to encourage you here today, even if you yourself are not like Jeff and Mackenzie Rollins who are in, they were in the second service, who, who are back from Ecuador. Even if you're not full-time overseas missionaries pouring into a specific people that God has laid on your heart, I encourage you to start asking God if you haven't already, God, who are you calling me to? Choose a people to pray for and to strategize and, and to ask God, God, how can you move mightily in these people? And he'll give them to you. And uh, so some of you know me, you know um, my background. I, I work for Anadarko here in the Woodlands for, for an oil company. And so I feel uh, very confident that the, that the people that the Lord has given me is my industry, oil and gas. And we're going through a, a lot of hardship right now. And so I just encourage you to be asking the Lord about this. I was, about a week and a half ago, I was flying from Frankfurt, Germany um, to Houston. And you know, you're watching movies, a long flight. And so I'm watching, I'm going through and, and picking the movie I wanna watch and I see Deepwater Horizon. So I don't know if any of you have seen that movie, but, I, but I'm watching the movie and I, and I have to stop and look around, you know, the lights in the cabin are kind of down low, but I've got tears pouring down my face as I, as I see this, uh, this Hollywood depiction of probably one of the worst tragedies in my industry and the impact that it had on the people and, and their lives. And, and it's just uh, overwhelming for me. And so if you don't know who your people are that God has given you, uh, sometimes it's just the people that you weep for and as you dream about. So just be asking the Lord about this. In the last few years here at Woods Edge, uh, myself and, and many of you have felt very uh, equipped and empowered as we've been talking quite a bit about discipleship. And we've been giving uh, strategies and we've had conferences, uh, we've had pamphlets and Bible studies about how to disciple and how to, to uh, infiltrate one of these people groups and to start one of these, what we're calling a disciple-making movement. And so I, uh, just like many of you, have. Uh, taking the initial steps of faith to do that, not only within my company, starting these small groups where Bible studies, where we're discipling and, and trying to implant this vision that they don't have to be a super Christian, that they can then go and start a group and disciple. And we're hoping that this catches on. And what I'm wondering uh, about you today is if you're in kind of the same season that I'm in right now, where I'm just I just keep hitting roadblocks. And I'm just, if I'm being honest this morning, I'm just really discouraged. And I keep hitting roadblocks from everything from uh, logistics. When I, when I uh, gather these groups together, you know, everybody's so busy. We can't find a time. We're looking for a venue to meet uh, to whenever I have an opportunity to, to share my heart, my dream in detail uh, to Christians that are in my industry, you'd think, man, they'd be all about it, that they would jump in with both feet. And sometimes they don't. Other times when I'm meeting with my groups, I actually struggle to have a heart for the people that I'm ministering to. It's just roadblock after roadblock. 
and I find myself uh, just giving up. And I find myself in a position where I'm either going to have to uh, really push through and it's going to have to be sacrificial and it's going to hurt a little bit, or I'm just going to take the easy road and just say, well, you know, maybe God didn't want that to happen, so I'll, I'll move over here. And um, God called a timeout in my life. Uh, in fact, he called a timeout in a lot of folks' lives. When oil price dropped, uh, the rig count here in the domestic U.S., I'm a, I'm a drilling manager for Anadarko, so um, the rig count in the U.S. was just decimated. And through a lot of prayer and conversation, discussion with my wife, um, there's a whole long story here, but I'll cut to the chase. I felt like the Lord called a timeout, and I accepted a position with Anadarko in which I'm, I'm drilling wells now in North Africa. And so I work over in Algeria. We're talking sand dunes and camels. God has called me into the wilderness, I believe, to help me process through some of this. And it's been painful at times. And I feel like he's saying, as I've, as I've kind of pushed into this uh, and reading the scriptures and seeking God's heart about whether or not uh, how I'm supposed to engage in his kingdom advancing outside the walls here at Wood's Edge, um, I was a little surprised. And I stumbled upon something that became so clear to me uh, that I'm surprised I didn't see it before. And so when we, when we consider our relationship with the Lord, with the Father, there's several metaphors that scriptures use. We're called a friend of God. We're, taught, we're called an adopted son and daughter. You know, Jeff says week after week, he says, we're a, we're a much loved, blood bought, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. I'm all over that. I love that title. I love that identity. But there's something else that Jesus exemplified and the early church leaders exemplified that was just so pervasive in their lives that is largely lacking, if I'm being honest, in my own heart and my own relationship with God the Father. And it's this theme of slavery, of being a slave to Christ, of him being my king and my master. Now, before I go any further and we read the text, um, I've got to issue just a little uh, clarification here. When God came into your life, when he crashed in and he pulled you out of darkness into the marvelous light, when he rescued you, much like God rescued the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, he rescued you from old slavery, a slavery to sin, a slavery to legalism and under the law. If you, if you read the book of Galatians over and over and over again, you'll see this phrase, under the law, as if it was just this oppressive blanket uh, that, that folks were just having to live under. And he says, I've freed you from this. In fact, Jesus himself says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Because a slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have disclosed everything to you that the Father has told me. Later in, in Galatians 4, it says, you are no longer slaves, but sons. And in my favorite verse, in my favorite chapter of the Bible, Romans 8, uh, it's as if God is, is saying to us, he said, look, you have not inherited, inherited a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have inherited a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so there is no doubt that for, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And we are free, and that is our identity. We are friends of God. We are children of God. That is who we are. And yet, there's another element. It's almost like when Jesus was walking on the road. Y'all remember the story when he stumbled upon the, the ten lepers, the guys that, were, that had leprosy, and he, and he healed all ten of them. 
and nine of them just kind of took the gift and ran. And one, one turned around and came back and took the position of a servant. He, he bowed at Jesus' feet and praised him loudly. That, that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what Jesus is saying. I can be your savior, but I want to be your Lord. I want to be your master. Would you be a slave of Jesus Christ? And um, as I was kind of processing through this, uh, I felt like this, this was really hard for me to receive, but I felt like the Lord said, Justin, you have gone as far as you can go and have two masters where you're going to have me whispering and, and speaking to you and you taking steps of faith. And then you're going to have this other master over here, this, this self, this autonomy, this, this sovereign reign of, of my own dignity and what I want to do and what I choose and what I think is best. And I feel like as a church this morning, God is saying, look, I, I'm really proud of you. You're doing so well, but it's time that other master die. I feel like he said to me that, look, Justin, you can continue to live in half-hearted obedience and maintain this self, this other master, what, what A.W. Tozer calls the self-life and enjoy, you know, you're welcome to it. You can enjoy this, this lukewarm, very comfortable American church experience. Or you can take a radical step and you can adopt a lifestyle in which you are daily dying to self. You're approaching that altar. You're dying to self and you can watch my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I just say, I was in the desert when he, when he called this time out, I'm, I'm there in North Africa in my room and I'm just crying out to God. Yes, let that be true. I'm ready. I'm willing to obey no matter what the cost. And so with that, we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2. So in, in keeping with tradition, I'd ask that we all stand and we'll put the verses on the screen here. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's going to speak to a people just like us. Philippians chapter two, verse five, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself in taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. And so we're going to start in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, uh, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. I, I specifically chose the New American Standard there for this translation. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation version says it's just so plainly. It says you must have the same attitude Christ Jesus had. And what Paul is trying to accomplish with these Christians in Philippi. He wants them to have a bigger vision, a broader perspective of Jesus. It's almost as if he's saying, look guys, you're missing something huge about what Jesus did that you need to keep in mind. And he said these things uh, to the Christians there because largely 
they were discouraged. <clears throat> they were having issues of, of perseverance and, and uh, a lack of faithfulness. The gospel had come into Philippi and, and all these people had gathered together and received the good news of Jesus Christ and they were moving forward to advance the kingdom and they were hitting roadblocks. And we hear of some of these roadblocks, roadblocks throughout the book of Philippians in which he says, for example, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, don't be alarmed. Uh, he said, don't be alarmed by your opponents. So there were these enemies, these, these folks that were trying to oppose and be difficult. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but rather regard others as better than yourself. There seemed to have been this spirit of competitiveness, of disputes. And Paul's addressing that. That's a roadblock. In chapter 3, verse 19, he's talking about some amongst their ranks whose God is their appetite. Ouch. Whose God is their appetite and who set their minds on earthly things. And so you see in Philippi, just like what you see in church today, <coughs> these two extremes where you have those that are, that, are, um, that are so comfortable in their relationship with the Lord that they live a life that's hardly distinguishable from those without a God. And then, of course, then the SWAT team swoops in to save the day. And then you've got this oppressive uh, group that's coming in uh, with the legalism of religion. <coughs> Paul calls it the false circumcision. These guys are coming in and saying, no, you've got to do it like this. And we've got to apply these rules. And you've, they're trying to put them in chains again. <coughs> and Paul says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That is the answer to all this as he writes this letter to the Christians in Philippi. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 6, continuing on with this attitude that Jesus had, in verse 6 he says, all right, so Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what we have here is it says, although he existed in the form of God. So you have uh, Jesus in, in both form and substance is equivalent to God. Right? We, we know this. We accept this truth. It's not an easy truth. But John 1.1, we know, says that before creation even, Jesus was there. That Jesus was with God and that Jesus was God. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul uh, tries to explain even further this, this mysterious relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And he says, it's, it's kind of like this. If God looks in a mirror with all his beauty and magnificence and radiance, and the image that's looking back at him is not this inanimate object, but it's, but it's Jesus. He actually says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He also describes Jesus saying that he's the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. In him all things are held together. Jesus is the same in substance as God himself. Now thankfully Paul doesn't say that you've got to understand this. He just says have the attitude that Jesus had. And that's the starting point where Jesus was, equal to God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, the scripture says. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, so here's Jesus, equal to God, and he takes the weight of his glory, his authority, his power, and he's giving it up. He chooses to give it up to God the Father. He's taking away from himself and giving it to the Father. But he doesn't just do it a little bit so that he kind of maintains some vice president status of heaven. No, it says he emptied himself. 
He gave and gave and gave of himself to the Father until he was empty. He had nothing left. And verse 7 says, he took the form of a slave, of a bondservant. That word in the Greek is doulos. And it means just that. It means a slave. So there's this dynamic for the first time in eternity where there's not this perfect unity in Jesus and, and, and God in the sense that now there's one that's a, that's a master, playing the role of a master, and there's another that's now playing the role of a slave. One's giving orders and the other one saying, yes, I will obey. And we see a foreshadowing of this, uh, like so many things in the New Testament, from the Old Testament. And so in Exodus chapter 20, uh, that's where we see the, the God give the Ten Commandments to Moses, right? So you've got the Hebrew people that have been rescued out of Egypt. They're going into the wilderness. God is training them, teaching them, working with them uh, so that they now know their identity as the people of God so that they can inherit the promised land uh, as the people of God. And so one of the first steps along the way is he pulls Moses onto this mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he says, this is how you ought to live. In the very next chapter, Exodus 21, God continues to kind of give some rules and some ordinances, and he, and he goes immediately into the subject of slavery. Really, it's debt uh, for us, what we would call in our world, but in that labor-based society, it was a, a slavery deal, where if I was a Hebrew and I went into debt to another Hebrew, then I would subject myself as a slave to that man for six years. And at the end of those six years, then I'm, allowed, I'm set free. My debt is absolved and I'm free to go. But there's this interesting little detail in Exodus 21. It says, okay, whatever status a man enters into slavery, the same status he ought to leave. So in the course of those six years, while this man is working for a master, working off his debt, the master can give him a wife and the wife can bear him children. But when he's set free, he is to go just as he came as a, as a single man. But there's a provision in verse 5 of Exodus 21. It almost sounds like the script of a Hollywood drama where it says, If the slave comes and plainly says, I love my master and I love my wife and I choose not to go out as a free man. And the Lord says to the master, you take that man, you go and you make him your permanent slave. And that's this concept that's wrapped up in the Greek word doulos. It's this idea of a permanent slave based out of and voluntarily decided upon out of love. Out of love for my master, out of love for my wife, I can't stand to be away from them. I choose to submit and give up my entire life of free choice and free will and doing what I want to do. And I submit myself willingly, unconditionally, forevermore to my master. And he becomes this bondservant, bondslave, bondman. There's several different English translations of this same, same word. So who else do we know that's done this? Who do you know that for the love of the master and for the love of his wife chose a life of slavery? Was it not Jesus himself? He says, God, I love you as my master and for my bride whom I love, I am choosing to empty myself, not to become just second in rank, but I'm choosing to empty myself and become as a slave. And Paul says, you too ought to have this same attitude. 
So we continue on in verse 7. It says, in being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. It's like he's got to say it twice because it's so, uh, such an amazing statement. What a major downgrade for one who was known as the image of the invisible God, now to become in the form and substance of a man, to actually appear as a man. The whole universe gasped. In verse 8, it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, this new dynamic in which Jesus is now becoming obedient to the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus freely and fully submitted to his master. And what God asked him to do was a part of this amazing redemptive plan where he wanted his kingdom to advance mightily and he wanted to, to draw back into himself, into relationship with himself, all these people that forevermore would, ne would not be able to enter into a relationship with God. And Jesus took the slave position. He became a human, came, out on, came to this earth, he bore our sin and he died a humiliating, dishonorable death. So at that point, there is nothing of self left in Jesus, is there? If there was, I mean, the universe would just have to explode with him up there on the cross. But he was completely emptied. All that was left was a slave of God. And Paul says, have this same attitude. Look up on the screen here. You'll actually see, I'm just taking a few examples of Jesus' own words as he was walking on earth. He said in John chapter 5, he said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John chapter 6, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 14, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. You, you hear this slave language of Jesus? Matthew 26, when he's in the garden and he's praying right before he's arrested and he's crucified, he's saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, my master. Can you say these things for yourself? When, when I'm there in the desert and, and I'm seeking the Lord about this and I'm, I'm reading this about Jesus and I'm asking myself that same question, can I put those own words in my mouth? If I'm being honest, my, my first reaction was, oof, man, is that part of the deal here? That just seems so extreme. And then as soon as I said it, I felt like the Lord say, there it is. There it is. You need to learn. You just don't know what it's like to have a master, to have a king. When you say Jesus is your savior, he's also your Lord. And the Lord began to continue to work in my heart for this. He continues to work in our heart. Have this same attitude. All right, we'll move on to the apostles. I've got some more scripture that I'll run through quickly here. Note the language what they're saying, there's several words here that are in bold and underlined. All of them are various translations of the same Greek word, this doulos, which means slave. So I'm going to read it with the word slave. So here's Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, Romans 1.1, his introduction. Galatians 1.10, for am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.1. Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John. You see, John's a slave. Paul's a slave. Timothy's a slave. Jude's a slave. They're all slaves. They all identify with this concept that was so pervasive in the first century. It was such a vivid reality. They saw it all the time in their world. And there was something in their heart when they experienced the Lord and what he had done for them. The only way that they could put words to it was to identify with what they were seeing in their culture. I'm a slave. I have a master. That master is Jesus Christ. This is a major part of who they were. In all of these verses, there were so many references, one-one references up there. And that's when they're writing these letters, they're writing their name and their position. It's, it's almost like if you're at a job interview and, and the guy says, you know, describe yourself in a few words. These are the words that these men choose to use when they're writing people just like us, fellow believers, spread throughout the kingdom. We're slaves. The apostles got it. And Paul continues to exhort us to freely and fully submit to the will of the master forever, no matter what. So what does it look like to be a slave of Christ? This word doulos and its various forms appear about 150 times in the New Testament. It's all through the New Testament. Even, even now that I'm sharing this, this message with you, you're going to go back and you're going to read and, and you're going to think and see how prevalent this is in scriptures. But when Paul is trying to, to coach the folks that he is ministering to, he says things like Galatians 2.20. What does it mean to be a slave of Christ? It looks like this. It says, he says, I, I, it's, I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In Ephesians 4, he said, lay aside the old self and put on the new self. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, live like this. Live as if you are not your own because you are not. You have been bought with a price. Jesus himself says in Luke 9, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And I love the gentleman that Jesus is. It's not like God's dangling this, this bait of salvation and once we grab a hold of it, he, he lassos us and puts us in chains and said, aha, you're a slave. It's not like that at all. It's an invitation. He said, if you'll follow me, we'll do amazing things. You'll have to deny yourself, that's the cost. You have to deny yourself, but you can follow me. John 12, 24, Jesus is, continues to teach. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Oswald Chambers, uh, a very famous author, said this quote. He says, the passion of Christianity is that I deliberately sign away my rights and become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. It is the passion of our faith that we do this. So if you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now, uh, that's, that's normal. That's a good thing. And I'm saying you're okay. You're in a good place. Because where we've reached this morning in our, in our discussion is a place in which our American values and our Christian values are in direct opposition of one another. And I think it's important that we, that we recognize this because as Americans from when I was young, when we were in school, you know, the whole phrase keeps coming back to me of <clears throat> taxation without representation, right? We hate it when authority outside of ourselves comes in and tries to make us submit 
to its will. And somehow, in submission to an outside authority, there's this, there's this deep-rooted belief in us that somehow we, we lose our dignity in doing so. And it's like our sovereign self is being dethroned, this, this sacred idea of our autonomy and what I want to do and what I think is best is being threatened. And if we're, if we're really looking at ourselves clearly, the truth is, is we just can't have that. We just can't let that happen sometimes from a very deep, deep place. And I'm thinking of specific examples in my own life and in the life of my family in which we've just, there's just been this white knuckle grip on the other master, the self, that we won't allow to die. Um, last Thursday, um, we have four kids. Our youngest daughter, Emmy Ruth, um, she turned one years old on Thursday, and so she's just this cute, plump, fat little baby, and I love so much. And, and uh, we were thinking about back when Lauren was still pregnant with her and how she'd go in to have an ultrasound done. And what happens is early on, particularly when the baby's small and uh, depending on the positioning of the child and the, the skill of the technician, sometimes it's, it's a little nerve-wracking, right? They're, they're having to search for a while. And what are they searching for? They're looking for that heartbeat that you see on the screen and you, and you hear it and you go, ah, okay, there she is. Well, I feel like at these times in our walk with the Lord where we're uncomfortable, we need to pause and kind of look inward and search around a little bit and search for that heartbeat, that heartbeat of ourself that needs to die every day in order for us to participate in what the Lord has for us. See, I think the apostles saw this. They felt this in themselves, and I think that's why so readily they identified themselves as slaves. They wanted in no matter what the cost. And what God was inviting them to, what Jesus was inviting them to participate in, was so far greater than anything that they would lose or sacrifice. But unfortunately, again, I think um, if we're being real this morning, that this is a, a pretty significant problem uh, with us as a people. In our culture, in the West, American Christianity is, is very me-centered. Uh, we, we seem to thrive around keeping this other master alive, and we need not to do that. We need to adopt this pervasive characteristic in not only Jesus, but these early church leaders that says we are a slave of Christ. We're going to die to ourselves. And let me just be clear that I'm not talking about spiritual disciplines here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, discipline and, and uh, you know, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to say your prayers. You've got to come to church on Sunday. What I'm talking about is this half-hearted commitment to this God-sized thing that God is calling us to. These people that, who he's called us to. See, God tells Jesus, I've got this huge plan to redeem these people. I love them and I want them back. I need you to play the role of the slave to accomplish the work to bring them to me. In the same way, Jesus invites Paul. He said, look, I know you're this prideful Jew, you're a Pharisee, but I'm inviting you some, to something so much greater. And if you'd only die to all that, I'll send you to the Gentiles and my kingdom will advance mightily amongst those that you formerly despised. And when these men submitted everything, their resume, who they were, when they were finally willing to lay it down and to even painfully lay it down, God used them in a mighty way, and he wants to use you in the same way, but he cannot do it while we serve two masters. It just won't work. We have gone as far as we can go, I feel. 
And so what is the Lord, our master, asking of you? You know, I think of Steve and Laura Smith, they've got this ministry, East West Ministries, um, that's focused on um, um, encouraging and disciple-making movement in the U.S. here. And so they've been involved with uh, Southeast Asia and what happened in China and India. And no matter where they go all around the world to train people on these disciple-making movements, um, they hear the same response that, look, we, we totally understand. We get why this worked in India. We get why it worked in China, but not here. Everybody says this. India said that actually before, before the Lord broke out there. And what, what Steve will tell you, if you sit down and talk with him, he's got incredible stories. What he'll tell you is, look, the problem is not with God, but the problem is with us. And when we hit roadblocks and when we're finally asked to obey sacrificially, we so easily lose heart, give up, roll over, turn to something else. And God says, Paul actually says in Philippians, he says, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. I pressed on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Jesus did not lay hold of you for a Sunday morning experience. He laid hold of you for this time and he made you who you are specifically so that his kingdom could advance in some way in the lives of people around you. And they are desperate for God, whether they know it or not. And, the, and your ticket, your entry through the door is to sacrifice and be obedient when it's hard. Press on when you're discouraged, when you hit roadblocks. Amen? We're, we got to be in. This has got to be it. If God, you may be like me, if God is calling you to, to steps of obedience with your finances, and then you hit that roadblock, this little thing called math, and you say, all right, well, God, the math's not working out. Or when the Lord... Uh, calls you to forgive your spouse or an ex-spouse. But that, just that offense is just so great. It's a roadblock and you just can't get past it. Or when God is calling you to, to quit your job or take a leap of faith and it's just not, nothing makes sense to do that, we have a choice. And when we feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's a good thing, right? That's the whole American versus Christian thing going on in your heart. And we need to sacrifice that and say, God... You are my master. And I have an ever-present, Jeb Colby says this, I have an ever-present yes in my heart. So when the master speaks, we almost anticipate it. We get excited when the master speaks so that we can obey because we love pleasing him and seeing what he does and how he uses us in the world around us. Let me pray. Lord God, we, we know that you, we believe it, we've heard it, we know that you want to move mightily outside these walls. In my people group, in my industry, for the love of God, in my kids, in my family, to everybody that matters to me, Lord, we have to see your kingdom come. And God, I admit I'm at a point of very low pride that you are asking me to give up a few things and to die to myself, and as painful as that is, God, for the promise that is so much greater and what you've called us to, we say as your children together here this morning, yes. We say, yes, Lord, use us. We love you so much, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen.